Hi, and welcome to the Edinburgh Space Data Capital podcast. I'm Kim McAllister. And I'm Murray Collins, Space Lead at the Bay Centre. We've been talking about lots of different elements of space, and today we're going to move on to marine, but it's not just Earth observation in this podcast, is it, Murray? No, it's not. And I realise when we've been speaking previously, we've we focused a lot on Earth observation. Edinburgh University is, is really a space university. We have capacity from right across this enormous spectrum of activities. So we have people looking at the way fires spread in space, for instance. We have engineers developing uh, polyether ketones, so high-impact plastics, which are used for the development of rocket fuel pods, for instance. So this, this is something which we, no, people don't really associate with uh, the University of Edinburgh. We have chemists working on the development of clean burn rocket fuels. We have people writing literature about space. We have people launching deep space probes. And so as a consequence, you know, the, the Earth observation component is that's obviously my world, but it's one part of a, a much richer tapestry that's been woven at the University of Edinburgh and in partnership with Harriet Watt. So very excited to talk about all these other things which are going on. Earth observation, we've, we've talked in the past few weeks about forests a lot. And again, that's, that's probably because that's my immediate world. But one thing I wanted to say was, of course, we have uh, the marine realm not just the terrestrial realm in Earth observation. So it's fantastic to get the chance to speak with Inkari. The interesting thing about marine mapping is I think people are much more aware of it since the Blue Planet came out. Would you agree with that? I think people are much more aware of environmental issues more generally, but certainly Blue Planet seems to have been a watershed moment. They actually went to an event with David Attenborough recently and said he was utterly astounded at the response to that particular uh, series of programmes. And I think it seems like, you know, there's been enough buildup of, of awareness in the world. And suddenly you see an image of a whale eating a plastic bag or something like that. It's so evocative and it captures just in one moment our impact on the rest of the natural world. And so interest in marine systems is, is yeah, it's absolutely skyrocketing, particularly as we experience these new extreme events such as annual global uh, bleaching of corals. Uh, so that's something which is very much a concern from an environmental perspective. But also what we talk about with Inkari is the, uh, the role of remote sensing in supporting things like renewable energy development. Yeah, there's so much to discuss. It's almost uh, it's almost impossible to cover it all, but we have We're going to, to though. We're going to. <laughs> We're going to try. We're going to try. We've got all the experts at our fingertips. It seems silly not to. Um, and the expert that we're going to introduce you to now is Encarni Lopez, who is Spanish. She is a civil engineer, so she's not from the School of Geosciences. So it was interesting to hear an engineer's perspective as well. Here's Encarni. My name is Encarni Medina Lopez and I'm a Chancellor's Fellow in Data-Driven Innovation, Space and Satellite based at the School of Engineering, University of Edinburgh. So you're a bit like Murray, you're a Chancellor's Fellow but you're in a slightly different school, right? Yes, yeah. So what's your area of expertise? So I, well, I like to call it the um, water, energy, environment trilemma. So I cover uh, essentially ocean and coastal engineering. Um, and anything in, that happens in that area, but looking at it from space. From space. So do you use Earth observation? Do you use the information from the Sentinels? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Satellites? Yeah. And how long have you been in Scotland? 
five years now. Wow. Yeah. Are you enjoying it? Yes, I love it. That's why I stayed. I came here initially for six months during my PhD and then I stayed. <laughs> and you, you've loved Edinburgh particularly. You've yes. not been tempted to move to any of the other cities? Well, the rest of the big cities in Scotland are also very nice, but Edinburgh has a particular charisma that it's just very nice. I think there's a lot of Spanish people in Edinburgh. Have you found yes, that? Yes, yes. There are tens of thousands of <laughs> Spanish. So when you walk in the street, you can always find a Spanish person, for sure. I do I do hear the language a lot. I love yeah. it. Um, so tell me more about your area of study. So how did you develop your career from five years ago when you first came here? Yeah, so initially my, my PhD was um, focused on wave energy. So I studied, um, well, how we can extract um, energy from ocean waves and essentially I, I drifted. I, I keep studying that area but I changed the tools that I use. So initially I, w I was using computational fluid mechanics and then um, well, I decided to shift towards um, earth observation. And what was it about earth observation that sort of changed your course? Well, I think it's I like the, the point where you can study the topic um, globally. So it's not, it's not a model that it's locally based. You can study any area and having so much open source data sets uh, from space, you can just do anything you, you can imagine. So that's very attractive. Mm. And it's free, right, the data? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, not free to someone like me, because I wouldn't understand it. <laughs> free to someone like you who can then process yeah. it and actually yeah. use it. So what kinds of things are you using it for? So at the moment, um, I, I work mainly with uh, Sentinel-2, so multispectral information. And my particular area of work is um, the estimation of sea surface temperature and salinity. But in my group, in my research group, we have also people working on coastal erosion from satellite data, water quality indicators. We also have a person working on lake dynamics to study how lakes change with time, also from satellite data. And we, we have also a project that studies the, how we are trying to understand how satellite data can reduce the cost of offshore renewable energy. Okay. So we cover a a very wide range of topics that all based in the ocean or water yeah, environment. Yeah. That's fascinating and the ocean is something everybody cares about right now specifically after the blue planet and yeah. the awareness that we now have of the temperatures and the pollution and the effect of the melting icebergs. I mean how are you applying this information to the climate crisis? So um, particularly one of my PhD students is um, doing this work in coastal erosion of flooding and we are we use satellite data and we use machine learning and our aim is to predict how coastal erosion and flooding is going to be in let's say 20 years 50 years time so we are trying to include every variable that we can think about that can be relevant in terms of climate change and see if we can based in historical information see if we can predict what's going to happen so Hopefully that will be very useful for coastal communities mm -hmm. and it will help reduce all of these economic loss and, well, all of these uh, potential losses of life and 
Mm-hmm. Um, that can happen when there is a, a huge storm or... And so is that information going to be used by governments, by private companies, by charities? Well, hopefully we have, um, we have a link with the British Geological Survey mm-hmm. and they are very interested in this area. They have projects also, um, they have European projects using satellite data to look at coastal erosion. So hopefully they will be a good link to make this project known nationally and it will be useful to make people aware of of the potential that we have from satellite data. You sound like you really care about what you're studying. Yes, yeah. I think, well, I'm a civil engineer originally and I studied civil engineering because I really wanted to make a difference and I think this is part of the same idea, really doing some research that can be used for a bigger purpose. Yeah. And Edinburgh has this ambition of being the space data capital of Europe. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, definitely. I I mean, we have a very strong group of people working in the different schools in in the University of Edinburgh. And we have a lot of good potential and very motivated people. So we have also the base centre, which is a, a catapult for everything that happens. So definitely, yeah. Do you spend time in the base centre? Not as much as I should, (laughs) so I should be based there from time to time, but I just happen to be there for meetings because, yeah, I do my teaching in the School of Engineering and we are based in King's Buildings, which is essentially at the other side of the city, so it's a bit challenging sometimes to Mm -hmm. balance those two. I just love bays in terms of space because if yeah. there was ever a building that said space, it's the bays yeah, centre. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's really nice and it's also open, so it's very easy to speak to people and and make those connections. And that's something that we're going to talk about in the podcast generally is how we go from the very specific scientific research that people like yourself and your team has done to actually making that a commercial reality. Do yeah. you feel like there are the opportunities in Edinburgh for that? Yeah. Yeah, I think somehow this is a a very young sector and I think people is just starting to realise that this research can have an impact and there are a lot of small companies that are growing from this. So I expect more industry, more business to to grow after all of these graduates that we will have in the coming years. Mm-hmm. You think that we're sort of thinking ahead in terms of the people that are being trained and the companies that are being formed? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's part also of the of the goal that we have as the satellite and data-driven innovation programme to not only train people, but to make them think ahead and try to extend what's already out there. Yeah. And what about in the future for you? What would you love to do going forward? Well, I really love the university, so hopefully I can stay. <laughs> so yeah, I, I like the, the balance of industry connections, teaching and research. It's sometimes it's challenging, mm-hmm. but... You wear many, many hats. Yeah, not, not as many as Marie. <laughs> That's very difficult. But yeah, um, I think as an academic, everyone, you have to be on top of so many different things. But it's, for me, it's part of the attractive of this job.
and Carney's one of your peers, um, but she's not in the School of Geosciences. And I think that's important to highlight that there is space activity across the university, isn't there? It's exa exactly as we were saying earlier. So I come from the School of Geosciences, but space and satellites is not a geosciences exclusive activity. We have people from right across the university working in an array of different sectors, and they have the engineers developing those fuel pods, We've got the clean burn fuel technologies being developed. But then there's also ways that mathematicians and uh, people working on artificial intelligence are getting involved. So University of Edinburgh is ranked as number one in Europe for artificial intelligence, for instance. And so at the, what's really exciting for me at the Bay Centre is that Bay Centre convenes all these different people working in these different areas in, in one place, working on a common set of problems. This isn't a geosciences activity. We obviously have a huge amount of expertise and a new centre for doctoral training in Earth observation. But the point is that there's a huge amount of activity going on in multiple schools. And we're going to bring in people from all of those schools. Yeah. And she is, uh, as we said, she's Spanish, but she's obviously very happy living here in Edinburgh. And that's the one thing I, that's really struck me with the university is the international element of both the people that teach and are involved with the research, but uh, the students as well. That's right. Edinburgh is an incredibly attractive destination for people from around the world. Uh, we've already met Ibuka, obviously, in um, uh, an earlier podcast, but we really have yeah, an astonishing array of people from around the world working on an array of different disciplines. And that's that's true for space and satellites as well. With regards to like, the immediate international agenda, um, we have COP26, or at least we had COP26 lined up in Glasgow, and satellites are going to be a, an important part of that conversation in, increasingly, because Earth-observing satellites enable us to track many of the indicators of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So uh, there's a very, very strong link to international development agenda. And it's still going ahead in Glasgow. Obviously, it's been postponed. We don't know how long for, but as far as I know, it's still going to happen. Is that fair? As, as far as I know as well, it will, it will still go ahead. So obviously, we'll be making a strong representation there as as possible we have some very very key people within the university uh, in the school of geosciences we have gary watmouth who spent the past decade of his career using earth observation technology to support international development so i'm really excited to have him on the podcast yeah he's going to be a great person to speak to it's all great people in this podcast isn't it <laughs> it, it is it is indeed so the interesting thing about satellite data is that people like you murray who are very clever and understand these things keep talking about free satellite data but people like me who don't know what that is it's not free at all is it so what do you mean when you say free satellite data Okay, that's a good point. I mean, it's, it's free at points of acquisition. So there's a lot of data available from the Landsat series, for instance, uh, and the European Space Agency has launched its uh, Sentinel series of satellites. So under the Copernicus mission, and there are these data sets which are available to be downloaded on uh, a series of open access websites. But as you say, you probably need a bit of knowledge to be able to, uh, to, to analyze those. What does the it look like? Is, no, what does it look like before it's analysed? Is it a series of ones and zeros, or what is it? No, I mean it depends on what the data set is. So a radar data set looks quite different, and that's that will be a sort of like a grayscale image, and it's, it looks quite meaningless when you unzip it. Whereas the optical data, it does need processing, but it looks a lot more akin to something that you could you know, recognise as an, an image of the Earth from space. And what I was going to say to you is. Yes, it's, it's not free in the sense that you need to know some stuff in order to be able to analyze it. But the great thing is 
that there are tutorials online. Let's talk about specifically the European Space Agency. There are tutorials online from the European Space Agency which teach you how to use the freely available software so you can get on your computer, download the software and teach you how to analyse that data yourself. I'm, I'm not convinced. I mean, you have a PhD and this, this is what you do. I don't think that someone like me could do a few online tutorials and figure out how to do space data, but could I? You may, you may surprise yourself, Kim. I think, I think that everybody these days is so used to using technology, point and click interfaces are available for, for analyzing satellite data and that, that software. Um, so there's, there's something called the SNAP toolbox, which is produced by the European Space Agency to enable people or everybody around the world to be able to access and process these data sets. Uh, and there's tutorials in how to use it. So actually, why don't we share on the, uh, we can put it up on the, the base website or we can put it up in the, um, in the link on the podcast, a couple of examples of videos to show people how to use that data. Good idea. Yeah, I think we should definitely share some of those links, Murray, because I want to try it and see if you're really as clever as you like to make out or if anyone can do what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kim. Well, you know, anything with space just requires so much brain power as far as I'm concerned. So it would be nice if it was something that was achievable by a mere mortal. So I will. I'll try it. I'll see how I go on. Well, there's, look, there's, there's a challenge for you. Uh, yep. whilst, whilst, whilst you're at home, learn how to analyse satellite data. Sure, nothing else to do, so I might as well. Well, it's something that Ian Woodhouse mentioned, and he, um, I know you've worked with Ian, and, and he's very much a part of the space team. He was talking about how accessible the space data is. Let's bring in Ian. Hello, my name's Ian Woodhouse. I'm a professor of applied Earth observation at the University of Edinburgh. I'm mostly focused on using uh, drones and aircraft and satellites to measure properties of forests, mostly. What kinds of forests? Tropical forests? Tropical forest, uh, temperate forest. Um, we have a lot of work in the dry tropics in particular. So I have a PhD student just now, for example, from the Malawi government's forestry commission who's looking at using drones to help interpret satellite imagery to help them do their national forest inventory for Malawi. We are also interested in, for example, estimating how much carbon is in forests in Southeast Asia so that palm oil companies can at least be more sustainable than they, they might otherwise be. And meet those goals that everyone's trying to reach. Exactly, yes. How are they, how is that going? What's the state of play with the palm oil companies well that's always uh it's always a challenge just in terms of that balance because they want to expand and grow more um oil palm we were i was just talking in fact to a former student who now works for a palm oil company in malaysia about how we might be able to help them be more effective at mapping areas of um, high conservation value and what role satellites can play in terms of, of mapping that. Well, that's good. So there is some cooperation with the companies then? Um, yes, some of the companies are fairly cooperative and they're they're keen to clean up their act. The And the satellite data provides information globally, repeatedly, and, and often it's, it's an easier way to get that data out into the public domain as well because a lot of the data is freely available and uh, open tools such as Google Earth Engine allow almost anybody to go and investigate the data themselves and, and make up their own minds. Well, this is what I'm interested in. Everyone keeps talking about the free data from the Copernicus programme, but actually, to someone like me with no training, no science degree, 
is that data any use to me or does somebody need to translate it and use it properly? Uh, somebody needs to do some kind of translation. There is some other interesting work going on in Edinburgh just now, looking at trying to make that easier for people that, that don't have technical backgrounds. But even just now, you can go on to things like the Sentinel Hub EO browser, it's called. So just searching for EO browser Sentinel Hub, you'll find it. You have to register, but that's fairly quick. And then you can choose to look at different types of data and it's already rectified into the right geographical coordinates. And you can just look at the area you're interested in over the time period. And does it display as like a photograph or yep. as a heat map? How does it no, yeah, more like a, uh, a photographic image and you can choose to select only the ones that don't have clouds for the optical data um, for radar, which is what I work in mostly. Uh, you never have clouds in them anyway. But yeah, it, you could probably, in fact, I reckon 10 or 15 minutes for a reasonably articulate, intelligent person who could get into it and start extracting That's interesting amazing. pictures. So if I had a farm, for example, with acres of land and I wanted to see, you know, what the river had done over a period of years or something like that, I could see all that kind of detail. Yep. So even the recent flooding, for example, if you want to go and look at the extent of that flooding, you could go onto the EO browser. You could look at that geographic area of interest and you would be able to find Sentinel-1 radar imagery that would distinctly show where the areas of flooding are because it would mostly be black. I'm definitely going to do that. I just assumed it was data that needed to be processed that I didn't have the skills to process. So all that data has is, is already been processed into what they call analysis-ready data. So it's it's been put into a grid uh, on a map-like interface and you just choose which data you want to look at. Oh, that's amazing. So anyone who's considering looking into a career in space and satellite data could start with that and see? Yep, no, that'd be a great place to, to go to. It's a bit more scientific than, say, Google Earth um, or any of the maps-based interfaces which shows nice satellite images but they're designed to look like a aerial photo photograph. Mm -hmm. The EO browser you'll actually get into some of the scientific data and some of the metrics that can be extracted from that, that oh, data. That sounds so it's, cool. it's a bit more interesting and then you can export the you can export the images and the data you can import them into some other tool. Amazing. So when you're teaching, I know you're on sabbatical right now, but when you are teaching, what is it about this area of study that excites the students the most, would you say? That's a good question. <laughs> what ex uh, I, I know it excites me, but I'm not sure what that necessarily always excites the students. Well, what do you get they, so kind of inspired with? Initially, just because it's so beautiful to look at the earth from above is one of the first exciting things. Mm -hmm. But then to be able to extract information out of that, that's useful. That's a nice puzzle to try to solve. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the students often get in excited by the fact that you can access this data anywhere across the world. Um, a lot of it's free to access and you can find out remarkable things about the planet just sitting behind a computer. And use it for really amazing ends like saving the rainforests or helping people who've been flooded or any number of climate change issues. There is a multitude of ways in which that data can can help in, in those kind of ways. And inevitably, the biggest hurdle is the is the political or financial or, or social con constraints on how that data is used effectively. Mm -hmm. um, but the data is, is certainly there and available and easier to get than it's ever been before. And tell me about your involvement in the flooding in Malawi because that was a really inspiring story for me. Well, one of the one of the key things, that, in fact, the EO browser. So after after the flooding in Malawi last March, the former students and and staff that I knew in some of the government departments in Malawi 
when the flood was happening, I, I got in touch with them to ask if they if they needed any extra data or, or map information. And they were saying, yes, please, anything is, is useful right now. So we downloaded some of the Sentinel-1, the ESA data, to do some flood maps. And we were also to, able to create some simple little animations over time using the, the Sentinel hub. And the key thing, and one of the things that we are that we consider very important is, is making sure that the, the people in country are able to, to do these things. It's not us just delivering it to them. So in fact, I, I happened to visit and not long after the flooding had subsided and met up with a number of these alumni people that I knew. And we actually sat down and I showed them how to use the EO browser so that they could create these maps and generate animations and, and, and create the data that they could import into their own mapping systems. So that the next time it happens, they, they the can do that is so much directly quicker. themselves. Yes. Yeah, because the information you were able to give them was then given to the aid agencies and the various government departments to direct the assistance to the people who had found themselves in the middle of a flooded area. I think some of our data found its way to contributing in, in some respect. Yeah, I think they were getting data from lots of, lots of places. You're at very the time. modest. <laughs> I would like to say that you helped to save lives with your data. Uh, you, you're welcome to say that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> this I'm is the thing with academics. You're so shy about how your, your research is actually used. But I always thought it was very cool that you know people in Edinburgh were helping to save lives in Malawi. Yeah, well, and a few other colleagues who, who work a lot in Mozambique were also doing the same in, um, for the areas over Mozambique. And it's great thinking about Edinburgh's role as part of a, a UK ecosystem, but also a worldwide ecosystem. Do you think that Edinburgh has a chance of being the space data capital of Europe? It is. Um, it is heading that way. So it's every every reason to believe that it will it will be. Yes. What do you think are its benefits and attributes that will allow it to do that? I think the key thing at the moment in Edinburgh is it has a fantastic ecosystem of both academic and government departments and SMEs and some large, some small. And there is there is just in the whole of central Scotland is just a, a good buzz about space and space data at the moment. And so far, I think mostly everybody gets on with everybody else and it, it has a very positive and, and collaborative environment. A lot of people are working together across different boundaries, upstream mm -hmm. and downstream, mm -hmm. academic and commercial, and even some, you know, and government departments that are, that are getting involved in, in seeing the benefits of, uh, of this, of this space data, but also, um, doing that collaboratively and, and getting real answers out of that. Do you feel like people, and I mean like the general public, are aware of the opportunities in space in Scotland? Uh, no, not yet. Most people think NASA when they think about space. I suspect many people, if they even heard of ESA, maybe don't even know what it means. There's probably a lot of people just now that think that European Space Agency will go along with Brexit and we won't be a part of that, but that's not the case. That's because, not the case, no, which is very encouraging. It's, a, it's just a, a private club, essentially, for European Space Agency, so we're still a part of that. It's important for us to do what we can to raise that profile a bit and make sure that more people realise that there's a lot of space activity happening in central Scotland, or Scotland more broadly, in fact, especially when we start launching satellites from the... Well, I know, Northern we're areas. hoping to launch satellites in the next couple of years, aren't we? It's quite incredible to think. And is Sutherland still the kind of favoured spot, or has Shetland got the edge? Uh, it's my understanding that the Sutherland is the official, is still the official site. So the very far north of Scotland... But there's yes, there's no there's no reason why other players won't can't get involved in that as mm -hmm. well. God, it's amazing to think we could be launching rockets from Scottish soil. Did uh, you ever think yeah. you'd see the day, or did you know that was going to come? Uh, I didn't, and, and I'm I'm old enough now to have to, to not have seen that coming. There's always been talk about um, being able to launch rocket, and in fact, launching rockets from the Western Isles is something that used to happen when when the UK did have 
something of a proto space program. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not completely unheard of. Well, it's a good spot on the Earth's axis, isn't it, in terms of the orbit of the space rocket we, or satellite? Yeah, if you want to send a spacecraft to the moon or if you want to put satellites into high geosynchronous orbit for things like satellite television and communications, being near the equator is, is best, which is why places like the Kennedy, Kennedy Space Center and Florida is the, is the sort of most southernmost state of the U.S., so mm -hmm. they're getting as close as possible to the equator because then you get all the velocity of the rotating Earth to help you get to, to the uh, velocity needed to get into orbit. Okay. But if you want to do Earth observation, if you want to do a lot of other atmospheric, oceanographic kind of measurements, you typically want to be in a polar orbit. So it's orbiting over the top of the, of the planet rather than around the, the equator. And to do that, you actually want to avoid having that initial velocity from the rotation of the Earth. So the further north you are, the better. Right. And then because Scotland can also launch that over open water rather than populated areas. There's uh, a bit of a, a safety. Exactly. It's a benefit. Fantastic location in Europe to, to do that from. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast is raise the awareness, get the excitement, inspire people to look at studying or working in this area. And there's plenty of opportunity at the university, isn't there? What kind of courses do you teach? Mostly undergraduate students in the School of Geosciences can do my honours option, which is about remote sensing of global change. So it's looking at large planetary scale changes and how you measure that from satellite. At master's level, we have an MSc in GIS that has been running for a very long time. What does GIS stand for? Geographical Information Science. Okay. And digital, a lot of digital mapping um, a lot of looking at how you extract spatial or useful information from spatial data. And then parallel to that, we have an Earth Observation and Geoinformation Management MSc, which has, has got a lot more on the Earth Observation and Remote Sensing technology. So LiDAR, radar, hyperspectral, uh, drone measurements. And what are the job opportunities after you've done a master's in that kind of area? Job opportunities are quite far and wide. Just in the local ecosystem, a lot of the companies around Edinburgh employ our students. We also have students um, around the world who are working for either the, the major space companies or space agencies. They're also working for local authorities, um, looking at, you know, using spatial data former students in the Scottish Government looking at spatial data. Everybody in some way or another is is using, utilising spatial data and and sometimes they're using satellite data without even knowing it. <laughs> and that is in, increasing. So there is a there's a huge growth in the in the opportunities for um, for people who want to get into that area. Ian's a really interesting character, isn't he? Because he's a professor and an entrepreneur, and I've not met many of those. No, I don't think there'd probably be very many around. Um, so he has a company called Carbomap, which specialises in analysing LiDAR data flown on a UAV over forests. And he's obviously an important character at the university as well, isn't he? He is. So Ian is currently working on the development of a space research theme. So as space and satellites takes more of a prominent role in the university's research plans for the next couple of decades, Ian's developing that strategy. So working out what key areas we should focus on and how we leverage our, all of our talent and expertise to, to really develop our research program and bring more funds in, produce more, more knowledge. And ultimately, we hope that that 
will spill out into the surrounding ecosystem of companies and NGOs and also government departments. So Ian's, even, Ian's driving forward on that and he's very much the right person to do that. It just shows you again how many opportunities there are for students at whichever stage they are in their career at Edinburgh University. That's right. And what you'll see now across all our courses is an increasing component of what we're calling data-driven innovation related topics within courses. So people having more options available in things like programming, geospatial analysis, geodata. Um, and that's that's within our Bayes remit. You'll see in, uh, in astronomy, for instance, and within engineering as well, an increasing role of space and satellite. So we, yeah, we're looking for more students to come to the university from the UK and uh, internationally to study. Um, and increasingly, we'll find that uh, a lot of our courses will be online sooner, perhaps, than, uh, than later now. Well, yeah, we just have to adapt. So we'll put something on the Bayes website and we'll put some links below this podcast as well. And there's your challenge. Let us know how you get on. Murray's on Twitter at Murray B. Collins and I'm at Kim McAllister. Thanks for listening. 